Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whomever, good whatever, good wherever I may find you, animal, vegetable, or mineral. This is Alan Averill, and this is episode 21 of Agitators Anonymous. So, last week's, well, I suppose the week before, the episode on cancel culture uh, went down pretty well, pretty interesting. Um... Lots of numbers moving. The podcast goes from strength to strength. Uh, Thousands of people listening and subscribing. And I thank you all very much for that. Um, Off the top, follow me on Instagram at nemthiang underscore primordial. Um, All of the usual places. Um, Over on the Primordial YouTube channel, not Primordial Topic, which is created by YouTube, but our YouTube channel. Um, There's going to be some more videos, some playthroughs, this, that, and the other. So do go and have a look there. So this particular episode is um, a chat with a special guest, Uh, something a bit more heavy metal, something a bit less political, something a bit less meandering, and a bit less of a crawl through the recesses of my grey matter. It's a chat with Andy Sneap, um, who should be familiar to you, um, unless you've been living under a rock in heavy metal terms. Living under a rock? That could be the name of my autobiography. Uh, Andy Sneap, of course, was in Sabbat in the late 80s. Big influence on Primordial. We discussed that. Um, the demise of the band. Hell. Being an engineer, being a producer, uh, recording, accept, nevermore, etc. 
and his new gig as um, the stand-in for one Glenn Tipton in a small band called Judas Priest, who you might have heard. Anyway, Andy is a stand-up gent, and he agreed to take a little break from mixing the new Accept album to just chat with me um, just about his musical career, his engineering career, where we think the music industry might fall on its feet or maybe on its knees. We're not sure yet. Um, Some great old stories from the 80s. All that you could wish for in a chat with the guy about his musical career. So, episode 21 is a guest. And uh, it's also a video Zoom chat. If you go to my YouTube channel, you will see our ugly heads in full, full garish YouTube quality. So, this is me and Andy Sneep having a little bit of a chat. Episode 21 of Agitators Anonymous. What's going on? Mr. Oh, I'm just, yeah, just finishing act up, so I'm just trying to get that finished. Oh, yeah? Well, welcome to the end of the world. How's it going? Uh, yeah, well, it is kind of the end of the world, isn't it? <laughs> I thought that if it was going to be the end of the world, it might be a bit more exciting. It might be a bit more bang for my book, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We, we don't know, though, do we? No, I suppose <laughs> this could be the start of a, a decade-long slow stumble through to the end of the world you know yeah 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 so what have you been doing what what about what have i interrupted your hectic schedule to do uh well i say i'm just doing finishing accept at the moment i I did put the uh put the finished masters in last night and then as as per usual i decided to tweak the overheads and bass always always the last thing so i I always end up going back and just doing a sort of a little tweak on stuff so um yeah, I'm just doing that. Just fin- finishing accept. Then got a week or so off. Then I start Fear Factory, mix that. Um, then straight on to Exodus. After that, mix them. And how so. how is that working? Recording in this sort of era, are people recording remotely and sending it to you, or people are traveling, or what's happening? How's yeah, it- well, it, it was. I mean, it's always been like that with the mixed inside. You know, especially since the internet's got a bit quicker, we've been able to send the, the files over to do the mixes anyway with, mm. with accept um we'd done probably three quarters of the album out in nashville i went out there and came back start of march actually i mean i had the right time trying to get back to the uk when this lockdown happened mm. um you know two flights cancelled on me and then ended up having to come back through atlanta on on virgin rather than british airways and try and get home uh, and then obviously i couldn't get back out there to finish the album so we had to do it we ended up doing it with Zoom, uh, Audio Mover, and what was the other program we used? Oh, Team Viewer. I was controlling the computer in Nashville with Team Viewer, and wow. then Dropbox. I was dropping the files onto Dropbox and picking the files up and putting them onto my system. Um, that must have been it worked. It, it worked pretty well. We were using a this Cubase as well. There's a, a thing in Cubase that you can do it, but this actually worked better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's ways around it. There's ways of making it work if you're determined to do it. Yeah, uh, but it, it just strikes me that then you're sort of like, how are you going to do the ones that are coming up? Is it going to be remote recording or people sending you files to mix or? They're, they're sending me files. They're recording, you know, Exodus recording themselves. And um, same with uh, Fear Factory. They're, I mean, their album's done anyway. They're, they're just tracking drums now. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just getting the... Uh, 
you know, the files to, to, to mix really. So that's, so under this kind of lockdown sort of thing is that mixing is okay, but actually being there to record a band seems must be pretty difficult without being able to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I should have gone to California to do Exodus, but you know, obviously that wasn't going to happen. So, um, yeah, you, you just, you just adapt, you know, I've, I've, I've done, I've, but it's meant I've been able to fit fear factory in as well. So, you know, from a, shall we say from a financial point of view, it, it's, it's all right. Um, it, it balances out, but, um, yeah, from a creative point of view, um, mm. you, you're not able to put your, your element into it, but that's okay. You know, these guys are experienced enough to, to know what they're doing. So. And what do you think about, um, like before this, I was watching the, um, I don't know if you saw this, the creator live stream from VAC and then it was almost like a CGI sort of live stream. And I remember yeah. last year, last year there was a discussion about this game called Fortnite and I have never even seen it. I, of course, I have no clue about stuff like that. I'm sure you don't either. But um, uh, and the guy was talking about the biggest gig ever was in the game. And it struck me watching Creator that it was some sort of glimpse into a rather odd sort of heavy metal dystopian future that it was a CGI crowd, CGI backdrop, CGI flames and all that kind of stuff. And it just sort of got me thinking about um, I have this sort of, I suppose it's amplified by the lockdown, but this feeling that maybe how we knew things won't quite return to normal. What do you, what do you, you know, think? It's going to be different. I think, I mean, uh, you know, especially for the larger gigs, I, I, I don't see how, uh, especially in America, I, I, the way it is out there at the minute, I don't see how, you know, we, I mean, all the priest stuff's got put back a year, but I'm, I'm mm. sitting here thinking, you know, is it really going to be uh is it going to be sorted in a year? I don't think so. The way it's going, I, I think it's just getting worse at the minute. So, um, I, I honestly don't know. It's who knows? Who knows? I think the whole thing has, um, you know, uh, spun everyone out a little bit, and we don't know where it's going. So, I, I, I don't want to be doing driving gigs and, uh, no. you know, but playing to booths, you know. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I have this feeling that like, uh, I was thinking about it during the week is that, I mean, small bands like underground bands who are playing to 50 to 100 people could probably, probably work a local gig in a 400, 500 venue. People are telling me that there's 20% capacities and stuff. And very big bands might be able to do residencies, almost like some sort of Vegas style residency. But for all the bands well, that's, in the that's middle. What I, I actually, um, I actually think that's a good idea. It's funny because we're, we, I'm not saying anything, but um, it, it's been spoke about and, and the, the, doing the residency thing, because you can keep everything in place, um, you, you know, you've not got the expense of moving it and, and, you know, you can cut costs basically, which would help some of the bigger bands. Yeah. Um, and, and actually it's kind of cool because you could do those smaller sort of gigs you know, the 1500, 2000 type thing and do a bit of a back to the basics type approach to it. And I think that's kind of cool. I think a lot of things are getting lost in these bigger shows these days. So I don't know. I always used to like those, uh, you know, the Sheffield City Hall and Derby Assembly Rooms type gigs when the bands used to come through. It always had a certain vibe. I mean, obviously everyone's right up next to each other, so it wouldn't work yeah. this whole virus thing at the minute. But, but wouldn't it be more like... Know, It'd be more like people more or less sitting, uh, kind of like, that's what kind of, I have this vision of sort of people sitting kind of 
eating while watching <laughs> bigger bands in a residence. Well, it's, it's funny. I went, I went to Uriah Heap in Japan because it, uh, and, and, uh, it was exactly that. There was tables and, and they were on a stage playing in front of these tables. And it, it, I mean, I quite, felt quite sorry for the bands, you know, that they're trying the best, but trying yeah. to get a, you know, some vibe back off the crowd is impossible like that, you know. Yeah, because what, I mean, like what, what I'm sort of worrying, well, I mean, I suppose every musician is worrying about this is that, um, is that obviously I think musicians and specifically rock and metal, it's just got so many human working parts um, that trying to uh, move it into this sort of new normal, as people keep talking about, it strikes me that it just doesn't, it, it's, it's just not possible, you know? You know, and the whole metal world, it's a very sort of natural thing, isn't it? It's kind of a, a you know, it, it's, it's the vibe of it. It's, you know, it's that passion that's in there, um, which, you know, people won't be able to express at a gig where they're sat down or isolated. You know, it was all, it's always that sort of tribal type gathering, isn't it? You know, for a crowd. Um, it's kind so of I like... It's just like rock is a bit too analog somehow, uh, fundamentally, to fit into, you know, the world of, um, I suppose, I suppose our world is still stuck in 1976 or 1986 and that touring is still the artery of the music. I mean, it's not uncommon now when, uh, you know, labels talking to bands to ask them, like, does anyone game because Twitch and all this stuff will be your only source of income anymore and because once taken live, it's gone, you know? Yeah, we're old. <laughs> even, but even the but even for young bands it's still an old process it's an analog process and that's sort of like i would just sort of worry that that's gonna well can you really see authorities in germany allowing forty thousand people from all over the world fly into a field and no. rub with each other for a weekend next summer no no, no. no. it's not gonna happen no. no and then what sort of happens then i don't know I don't know. I mean, we've just got to sort of play it by ear. I mean, there's a lot of bands trying to make albums for next year now. Um, but again, I mean, do you really want to put an album out if you can't tour it? You know, so. No, I mean, I was being a bit sort of selfish about it and being a bit cranky last week. Uh, and somebody was going to me, oh, is it going to make a new primordial album? And I said, well, we'll write songs. But if there's no agency, like no traveling, no gigs, I couldn't see a point in making any more heavy metal personally. Like, because it, it's, the, it, I said, I sort of said, like, what would I do then? Like, an album would come out, and this is what I would do, is speak to different journalists on Zoom. And then, okay, I'm just back to, back to, you know, pottering around to the shop and stuff. There's no agency, there's nothing in it for me. And the person yeah. I was talking to was kind of like, oh, you're so selfish, because, you know, think about all the fans of the band. I said, yeah, I know that. But, like, that's, a, that's just releasing an album, and then me speaking on Zoom for a week, and then, okay, you're going to go back to where you yeah, were. It's, it's about timing really isn't it i mean i think if you've got to wait another year for an album um so, you know if we've got to wait another year before we can actually tour a year is not a long time you know i, I think you're, you're better off hanging on to that material so you can put it to good use you mm -hmm. know rather than releasing maybe, maybe release one or two sort of singles or some some sort of taster type thing or, or do you know it's like saxon are doing a covers album now um, we, we were going to finish their album at the end of the year, but they're going to do a covers album to tide them over. Um, and I think that's kind of the right approach. Do something just to keep the public interest up and keep your name in, in the, 
you know in the in the public eye but mm. what I do think you think about the uh, what do you think about the sort of um the you know the live streams to no one kind of thing have you seen it yeah i i don't i mean i don't really watch it i mean i'm 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 not that on up on the whole social media thing to be honest so i'm kind of um yeah it bores me it bores me there's no yeah i don't want to sit and watch a band you know even acoustically or you know or the odd live thing it it doesn't really do anything for me i don't i don't get the vibe off it um but i understand why bands are doing it because they're just trying to keep the things ticking over and it's the only way they can do it at the minute um so that's not you know i'm not putting it down but i, I it doesn't interest me if i'm if i'm totally honest about it yeah, it feels sort of a bit depressing and empty to me. I mean, maybe that's me amplifying or projecting um, my own lockdown worries and fears onto the endeavours of others. But it does feel a little bit um, like, oh, they, they, you know, the sort of the rock and roll element of all of this is just, oh, okay, now we're reduced to a band playing in an empty room, you know? Yeah, I've, I've done that enough times. <laughs> <laughs> don't yeah. need to see anyone else doing it <laughs> oddly enough um and sort of prepping for the kind of today today sort of uh uh in prepping for the conversation i was just watching a video of you playing in braunschweig or something in 1988 oh right yeah 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 so yeah, yeah. young heads on everybody you know yeah that would have been uh the dudley speed convoy with rage and risk um yeah, not many people on those dates. You know, talking about empty rooms. No, it's probably about 150, 200 there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, you know, this first European tour we did. Rage yeah. and Risk. Yeah. It's a curious, yeah. Uh, <laughs> curious too, combination. Um, yeah, they, they were both managed by a guy called Boogie Kopek, which was Drakkar Promotions. Yeah, yeah. Who also did Creator back in the day. Um, so he put the tour together because uh, he knew Carl at Noise and then they wanted to put a three band, three band package together. So yeah, it was us and those two bands went out to sort of I think it was six weeks around Europe. So well, yeah, it was a good, good, good experience. You must have been very young then, like 18 or 19, right? 18, yeah. yeah. 18? Yeah. And allowed out of home to tour Europe for six weeks with risk and... Well, I, actually, yeah. I mean, I... Um, I, we had to wait till I was 18 to sign the contract with Noise. And, and by the time I was 18 in July, and then by September of 1987, um, we we're in Hanover recording the first album. So yeah. we, it all moved really quickly, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, to, to think back now, you know, when I was 18, I got, I, I was spending six weeks, or no, probably four, four or five weeks in, in Germany recording my first record when I was 18. You know, at the time it didn't seem odd, but now when I look at 18 year old kids now, um, yeah, yeah. again, not putting anyone down, but you know, my brother's kids when they were 18 seemed really young. Yeah. Um, I guess I, you know, I guess I was really young. I remember starving myself and saved, saved all my PDs. Um, I, I lived on a, a slice of pizza and a tub of yogurt every day and saved all my PDs so I could buy a Kayla Trem from a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I lost, lost about a stone and a half. I was down to about ten and a half stone by the time we got home. <laughs> yeah, because the first, I was thinking about it as well, because we were talking about it in Primordial, and three of us, um, I don't think we really knew each other yet. We saw Sabat in 89 in Dublin. And yeah, we got 
Yeah, that was it. And it was really quite influential to us because with the first band we'd seen who weren't just wearing jeans and T-shirts, I probably told you this, bored you this by telling you in the backstage before sometime. Um, and it was the first time we'd ever seen a band like wearing sort of like black and gauntlets and leather and stuff. And it was just like really profoundly, we went, oh, okay. You don't need to just look like Testament and stuff. Where, where did all that kind of thing come from, really? Was, to be honest, it was really Martin and Fraser that were into the whole pagan imagery side of things. Um, I was more in, into the thrust side of things and more into the playing and the riffs and, mm. you know, gear and the guitars, you know. Um, and I actually, I, I didn't realise at the time, but looking back now, it was obviously something that connected with people, you know, obviously Martin's lyrics and yeah. the whole the vibe, you know. Um, I really just had my head down and I was writing as many riffs as possible, you know. Yeah. Um, and we didn't really think that much about the songwriting, to be honest. We, we, you know, I'd write the riffs and he'd stick his lyrics in and sort of jam them in to fit within the riffs. And we just sort of created something that was, I wouldn't say unique, but something that was a little bit individual um, yeah. and a little bit ahead of its time because I guess we we were we were so into what was happening at the time with sort of Merciful Fate and Slayer and Exodus and all these bands that were coming up uh, or, or were sort of, you know, on the underground, sort of leading the underground. Um, and we were sort of, I wouldn't say ahead of the pack, but we, we were there at the moment. So what we were doing was connecting with the same crowd as what people that was into that. So, yeah, yeah we, I mean, we fell, fell in sort of behind Celtic Frost sort of, you know, and obviously signed with Noise, so there was like Halloween and Celtic Frost and Creator all on the same label. We sort of, you know, we were sort of the English, yeah. quirky English band on the label, you know. Yeah. Well, that's how it struck me, because even the demos to me, uh, kind of like as a black metal kid or black heavy metal kid, whatever you want to call it, the demos almost sounded like black metal. They still sound like, or like really caustic black metal at the time. But the thing that strikes me about it's like the how the image was almost perfectly formed and you guys were so young is quite striking there's usually one band member who isn't playing the game who doesn't look right but even in the posters I used to see the magazine Sabat just look, all looked it all looked so perfectly formed does that make any sense or sound weird yeah I mean obviously there was hell um, around here that we, yeah, yeah. we were really influenced by um and, and especially very early on, we, we I, I mean, we, we were sort of not ripping them off, but we, we were sort of blatantly influenced by them. Yeah. Uh, um, just because we looked up to them so much, you know. Um, so their whole idea of being very uniform and ha having a look sort of struck a, a chord with us, really. Uh, yeah. So we always thought that, you know, we could have stage gear and there should be a, a vibe, you know, and it, it yeah, I, I just think it, it made for, yeah, especially like the packaging and, you know, artwork and, and things. I always thought it was important to make a, an impression. And even with the demos, um, even, you know, they, they sounded as rough as hell, to be honest. But even with the demos, we, we made sure we got some sort of decent cover on it and hey, yeah, something yeah. That's interesting, you know. Yeah. And it does. It, it's like it's making, you know, when, when you've got a, a bunch of cassettes thrown at you, um, you know, you're a record label boss, you're going to pick the one that looks interesting. So it was always common sense, really, uh, just doing something a little bit different, you know. But it was so uh, kind of out of uh, step with the kind of English thrash scene, because it's so bizarre to me that 
like you have obviously Maiden, Priest, and all the great heavy metal bands from England, but the thrash thing, oh, I mean, at least to me from the outside looking, I was always more interested in Celtic Frost and Bathory and stuff than Testament and that, but you've got like Onslaught and Slammer. Okay, first Onslaught, fair enough, but by 88, 89, it was all a bit kind of like DAM and all this stuff. And then, but you guys look so completely different and at odds with that whole... Yeah, you know, you, you, I mean, that was really Martin and, and Fraser, like I say, they, they got this sort of... Uh, this vibe and obviously Martin writing the lyrics, um, you know, and being the front man, it was going to give the whole thing that flavor. So yeah, I can only credit Martin for that really. Uh, just, you know, having that whole vision really. Yeah. And when, when you were then making those, uh, also like just sort of, I was thinking about all this kind of stuff and going back over my old, playing the old records and all that kind of stuff. And I wondered if maybe your sort of like the career you ended up in producing after Sabat was partly informed by spending so much time in the studios and stuff recording, maybe the experience of Morning is Broken or something, or how did that, did that sort of affect your own thinking about producing? Yeah, I mean, I, I was always interested in the studio. I mean, I always preferred it actually to going out gigging um I, I like being creative and putting the sounds together so but i remember when we did the first radio one session um and that was the first sort of proper bigger studio we'd been in uh, and it, it was kind of just hearing the whole thing come together and sort of another guitar go down and and, and the, you know it's sounding professional it was like oh yeah we can do this and when we did the album uh, you know, I was just fascinated by it. Just, just you know, the whole recording vibe and micing up and different tones. Um, and I slowly got more and more into it and, and got my own demo stuff together. I had a little portal one tape machine to start off with. And then I got yeah. a reel-to-reel eight track. Um, and I'd set, I got a reel-to-reel machine at the old studio, at the old rehearsal room. So I started demoing my own stuff. And it wasn't really the morning's broken album, but it was just, you know... I needed a way of recording my own demos and it, it, I just got more and more into it, bought, you know, more mics and a few other pieces and little mixer. And I started doing demos for bands at weekends, you know, um, just to make a bit of money really by the time mm. I, I moved out of home. Um, and it, that, that led to another thing and led to me working at a bigger studio in Nottingham and then working with Colin Richardson. And, you know, it's just really word of mouth and you do a good job and one thing leads to another. Yeah. Um, and it was still in the music business. I mean, I didn't really know what else I could do. Um, and by that time, we were early 90s, mid 90s, and the whole thrash thing was dead in the water anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I tried doing a few other bands, bits of band stuff as well, and that, that wasn't working. So really sort of getting into the production side of thing was still being creative, and um, it was still part of the industry that I enjoyed. So it just seemed a logical step, really. And because I'd had so much experience as a musician in the studio, I think it really related to musicians that I work with because mm. there was this sort of producer standoff sort of vibe. You know, it was very relaxed. And if I got an idea, I could pick a guitar up and show them and, and yeah, yeah. work these out. So it worked well. Um, and a lot of, the, you know, I got a name for myself, especially locally um, as a musician as well. So. It, 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 it helped, you know, it was a step up to to doing this side of things, you know. I mean, but, but it's funny because like you're talking about there in 88 being or 87 being 18. And then by 1991, 
the sort of sabbat is finished and that's sort of you're not even 25 yet uh, you know i guess it's all happened oh, well, in about four or five years. yeah i mean it was over by the time i was 21 so um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we weren't actually together that long, you know. No, that's, what I, I, that's what's fascinating because I picked out Morning is Broken today and it's a record that I always wanted to love because I loved the cover. But I just, yeah. even back then, I just didn't understand, I was kind of, I didn't understand what had happened to the band really. But also 1991 was kind of, 1991, even we, though we didn't realize because you had Rust in Peace and, Seasons in the Abyss and all the big bands were still doing records, but 1991 was kind of the last stand of thrash metal, you know. By yeah. 92, I I remember thinking um, when when the band finally split up, you know, if not because a lot of the American bands were falling by the wayside as well, and I was thinking if the American bands can't do it, then we don't stand a chance because the you know the the whole industry is the the whole vibe was changing you know as soon as i saw pearl jam poster in nottingham i knew it was over you know it wasn't going to happen anymore and and you know when people say grunge killed it it really did people were just desperate for something else really yeah Um, and i think it it went more underground didn't it really because the sort of death metal thing started coming up and that was really at the fragments of the the thrash thing to me I, i wasn't really that switched on to the whole death metal scene in, in the 90s. I was more focusing on recording and, and just got out of the scene a little bit, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but you can see how it went. It, that sort of the, the people that still want the heavy stuff went towards that side of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought, it, you know, if the American bands can't, can't carry on, I don't see how we can. And The Morning Has Broken album, it, it was thrown together quickly. I got all the riffs and everything. That was all meant for you know, the, the original lineup. Um, we'd had a falling out because Martin wanted to do shorter songs, which again, with hindsight, I, I agree with. I think I'd, I was so, so involved in writing technical stuff, just to interest myself really. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, I didn't see a point in doing, finding someone similar to Martin because he was off doing Skyclad. So yeah. it was kind of what we're going to do with this. And obviously uh, Richie, who we got into sing for us, was a totally different ball game and it was kind of, it was you know let's try something different and obviously you know it didn't work there's a few people like it mm. um i know i saw them in i saw their youtube comment work. yeah but and know. it was just it's just a curious sounding record because it's 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 weird because i was trying to, i was wondering in my i was listening to it today and i was thinking to myself this is a really strange sounding record and i half had it in my head that maybe somehow it kind of prompted you to kind of go right from now and i'm going to record this bloody stuff myself or something you know oh, sonic sonically you mean strange yeah 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 it's, it's weird isn't it um i mean that, that we, we worked with sean lynch on that who, who did like the headless cross album and tear and um and like you know a good engineer sean he, he did glenn's solo album he did some of the um i think he did some of the ripper stuff with priest as well right yeah uh, um but me and him when we we're in the studio we we're banging heads a little bit uh and I, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit, yeah. We, I mean, actually, actually, Dreamweaver as well. I mean, Dreamweaver for me, the mix on that, I think, was shocking. It's very um, compressed. It's very compressed. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know, I that was another thing that we didn't get on about me and Martin. I, I wanted to, I wanted to use another engineer. He wanted to carry on using Roy. Um, and it, you know, at the time, that was a bit of a oh, what we're going to do here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 
you, you know, you learn these things as you go. It's a learning process. I mean, you, you make a record, we won't do that again, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so then by the sort of early to mid 90s, then what were the first things that you were recording on? You obviously went from being assistant engineer to the engineer. And then by sort of 1998, 99, 2000, then you, you seem to have a sort of, a, you know, you were just doing so many things. You know? Yeah, well, I yeah, I went out to um, California end of '96 to do Machine Head with Colin. Um, I ended up finishing the album off in LA, uh, and I'm, when I was out there, uh, you know, I met obviously Monty from Roadrunner, who, who I already knew, and I met Boroboy, who was at Century Media at the time, mm. um, and and I started getting work for Road, you know, sort of smaller bands for Roadrunner and Century Media, uh, and it, it it just you know kept progressing really um and they, they were the sort of two labels that had a lot of stuff that was you know needed a young engineer with a fresh approach yeah and i was getting a lot of work off them so i, I was finding myself out in america a lot um yeah it, it just built up that way really just you know doing stuff on, on budget on schedule um and doing a good job and, and, and people come back to you and you know yeah. people going about the andy sneaks i was just doing doing my thing really what I, how i felt it should sound you know and it was well, kind of interesting because you're sort of uh, i was listening again i was listening to stuff like some nevermore and some of this kind of stuff which i really loved at the time and still love but i could see how it was sort of dividing the traditional heavy metal how do i say a listening public who are maybe not used to such a kind of a modern kind of sound and it seems sort of unfair that your name became associated with yeah, I had uh, I had a bit of an argument with one of the guys at Rock Hard magazine actually because he he was saying that you know he was using my name as sort of de in a derogatory term about sort of the modern sound and I was like well hang on a minute because you know you can't say he was saying everything's sounding the same or whatever but you you know you can put Exodus up against I don't know um, you know Blaze Bailey album or. Uh, yeah. Nevermore, you know, or Testament, they all sound different. I, I've got my own stunt that I put on things because there's a clarity that I try and get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, to, to sort of tar me with that brush is a, is a little bit unfair, I think. And you're right, you know, that modern sound, sort of my name kind of became associated with that in a way. Um, yeah. Because there was a lot of people then trying to copy what I was doing and, you know, some, some were doing it well, some weren't doing it not so well, you know. Mm. Um, but, you, you know, it, it, it's tough because you've just got to sort of stick your head in the sand and, and keep going with it, really. And I don't, I don't listen to those sort of comments anymore. Because it, it, you know, I, I, the work keeps coming in. People like what I do. Yeah. I, and it's not going to affect me, you know. So, I mean, this is more like, I'm thinking about this a bit more like, say, 20 years ago when... If you think about it, you mentioned like Blaze Bailey there or something. All of the traditional metal bands, arguably, I think their records in the 90s sound awful. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe the people who engineered them in 8081 had to, had to listen to people who were 70s engineers going, oh, all this modern stuff in 1981 sounds like this, that, and the other. And they were, I think it was probably something similar that was happening. But like if, if a Nevermore record had the awful production of an early 90s Iron Maiden record, it would be completely neutered of its power you know yeah yeah i know um i mean there's some of the stuff in, i was listening to what was i listening to um some max norman stuff the other day the, oh, the, yeah. the y and t albums Oof, yeah. Yeah. great 
Yeah, yeah. He, he, had, he had a really modern approach at the time. Um, yeah. he, there's some great there's one, one, two, one or two guys out there, you know, did influences. I mean, Michael Wagner as well, what he was doing. You know, some of his stuff in the 80s sounded great. You know? Yeah, you're docking um, great white and stuff like that. Yeah, so. they all had that that clarity, which I try and get on stuff now. Um, obviously, with technology now and, you know, we've taken everything that little bit further and pushed everything a little bit further. Um, and it got to a point, probably, like you say, probably sort of 15, 20 years ago where we were editing things a little too much and it was all getting a bit too sterile because Pro Tools had just come out and we, we, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, we can move that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now I think we've found a happy balance of the whole thing of, of how it can work, you know, yeah. and still keep a vibe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I think some of the some of those old guys in the eighties were real had a good forward thinking way of doing it. John Cunaberti as well, who did Zantrix oh, yeah. and Forbidden. I always think John's yeah. stuff's great. Yeah, I, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah, I mean, is it, Max Norman did the first like a great white sounds huge and Doc and Michael Wagner under lock and key is a huge sounding record. And I didn't. Well, looking back at it, I don't see that much dissimilarity between some of the kind of the, 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 the sonic template of some of that stuff from the end of the 90s and, and that huge sort of mid-80s hard rock sound. I guess what it is is was disgruntled thrash metal fans and disgruntled underground fans and people who wanted everything to have that sort of 70s, very slight guitar sound or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, everything relates to each other, doesn't it? Uh, and, you know, now we're not having to sort of, we're not on tape and we're not on vinyl. So the, 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 the Sonics have got bigger, you know, the low ends there, the high ends there. Um, it, it's, it, you know, when you listen to those old albums, they work, but I think if you apply that now, um, you know, you'd be getting, it wouldn't work. You know, I mean, I listen to those, the old Priest records. I've got the old multi-tracks. Yeah, yeah. Really, you're just putting the faders up, and it's like there's your mix almost. You know, yeah. it's almost it's so raw. Um, but what people, if people love a song, they think it sounds good. You know, if they, the amount of people that want a certain sound because they like the song and it it, it relates to them, you know, yeah. uh, it resonates with them. So they 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 kind of want a certain sound, but then you can't just take that sound and apply it to something else. So you've got to really, you've got, you've got to mix a band for their, the sound develops themselves really. You can't just apply it. You know, you can't take someone else's sound or an older sound, I don't think, and, and apply it unless you're particularly trying to copy a whole vibe and then it's why bother, you know? Yeah. It's kind of struck me as a bit weird. Sometimes when you talk, I talk to younger bands and they want to, they talk about sounding like 1978 or 1991. And then you go, yeah, but you're playing like blast beats and super festival pedal and you're down tuned and stuff. You're going, what? Yeah, you can't, work. No, you yeah. can't, you can't really do that. But a magazine there asked me to name my favorite Martin Birch, um, you know, uh, sounding record. And I picked mob rules but I was thinking to myself, what would you pick as your favourite one? Well, Mob, Martin Birch. Mm. Martin Birch. Uh, well, Mob Rules is good, definitely. Um, but I did listen to Number of, Number of the Beasts again the other day. And yeah. that, that's a great signing album. I mean, the, the snare on that is great. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a toss-up between Mob Rules and Number of the Beasts for me. 
what about heaven and hell in relation to mob rules? Everybody else is picking heaven and hell, and I was thinking, yeah, mob rules, mob rules for me, yeah. every time. Yeah, Vinny on on drums, he, he just nails it. Yeah, yeah it yeah. makes a difference for me. Mm. And I prefer just the vibe of it. But I did get mob rules before heaven and hell, so I, I think that that always, you know, it's where you were at a certain time. You know, you relate back to it, don't you? Mm. Um, so yeah, mob, mob rules. I mean, I, I think I've got mob rules about five times in different formats. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I actually uh, n nothing to do with Martin Birch, but I actually really like the Born Again album as well, just because it's so different. It's it's a it's a weird record. Um, I, I was somebody told me a story uh, actually last week or the other week about uh, Gillen's first gig with Sabbath was apparently in 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 Dublin to like in a stadium, you know, of ten fifteen thousand people. And he wasn't my man for learning the old lyrics. So he'd written them all out on the stage. The dry ice. Yeah, and the dry ice gone away and he bent over to move it and split his pants. Yeah. And had, had to run off like 500 meters to change his pants. So the whole first two songs were completely instrumental. <laughs> instrumental Iron Man. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, it's a, it's a weird sound of record. It's like the snare has got this whoosh, whoosh. Oh, it's very strange. Oh, yeah, it's bizarre. But it's, it's, I, I kind of like it just because it is so different you know so bizarre um some good songs on it yeah you know? the priest and zero the hero and stuff yeah. what's your what's your favorite thing there or your do you have any kind of on a record that you think oh, i could have i could have hit that one out of the park better or something happened that was kind of uh you didn't really you didn't get aged so well or anything that you produced um yeah oh there's a few of them yeah i mean oh, i i i actually never go back and listen to an album usually when i finished it because i'm just so burnt on it mm. um and you you know you just you you pull the mix apart you always pull the mix apart when you know you like, why didn't i hear that well yeah. wh why did i do that you know um there's always something you know where there's too much top on the kick or you know the vocals are too loud or the, you know the guitars are weird and you don't hear it at the time because you just heard it yeah you can't see the wood for the trees you know yeah. um but yeah, that, that really is the art of mixing in a way that it is a slice of time of where you're at. And I always try and spend a bit more time now when I'm mixing, just sort of walking away. You know, like th this was good to do this today, actually, because, <clears throat> you know, I'll go in with fresh ears again in, in a minute and just, yeah. oh, well, yeah, right. You know, a bit more of this. And it, it, you really, you do need to sort of take time, step back and, 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 I always think going into the studio first thing in the morning, listening to what you've done and going with your gut instinct is, is the right thing to do because you're fresh ears, you know. I mean, I, I was two o'clock this morning and I was trying to EQ symbols, you know, yeah, no yeah. chance. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I always think recording is a bit like the power of suggestion, you know. Like we're, I don't think it's a good idea to do, I mean, personally, just my, the albums I've made is like recording to the committee that sit on the couch behind you. I like to do singing to no one and then have everybody come in and go, hmm, because like, you know, if you're not, if you're recording, like sort of everybody's sitting there going, oh, I don't know about this and that and the other, but the power of suggestion, which is, could the bass be a bit louder? And then you're listening to it and you're thinking about it. The, the skills yeah. be able to separate as an engineer from the power of suggestion. I don't know if I would have been able to do that. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm my own worst critic and always, like I said to you, at, the, at this point in the mix where I'm at now, overheads and bass it's the two things that i that i think are the hardest things to get right because they're so dynamic in a mix you know symbols are, are down to the way the drummer plays a lot of the time you know mm. whether he's really powering through them or, or whether he's you know he's just going through the motions 
and, and, and base, you know, the low end of a base can be all over the place if you're not careful. So, um, and it's two things that if you sit both the bass and cymbals back in the mix, it's very easy to mix like that because you've got a lot of power out the kick and snare and the guitars are doing their own thing. They're very linear and in their own spot. Um, so yeah, just trying to get that balance and, and getting those right for me is, is the, the fine line of it being finished or not. Um, and usually it gets a little bit overlooked until this point and then you're, oh yeah, I can't hear that, that accent there, you know? So it's, it's, it's always something that I come back to at the end of the mix. And what, uh, like, that's what I was, th I was thinking about, like, you said to me once we were playing some gigs with hell and that, and you just sort of said you just got burnt out with it eventually. Like what, um, where was the moment where that happened? With hell? No, no, with, uh, with engineering, we just kind of went, I need to go back and play in a band and play guitar again. Oh, I just, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, the, it, it, when you're doing it day in, day out, I think anything you're doing um, becomes a job, even if you're, you know, you're playing guitar, you know, it, it'll still, if you're doing the same thing every day, um, that, that, that becomes monotonous as well. So uh, I think sometimes you just need to change things up a little bit and, and just find a, another avenue. Um, and the health thing was good because it was, you know, it, it, was, it was something that we could um, build again, really. Um, and you, there was a good vibe behind it. And, the, you know, the guys are good guys. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a bit of fun, you know, so... Yeah, we, I mean, it was never going to be huge, but it was something where we knew we could have a good laugh with it and, yeah. and enjoy it and enjoy playing, which was, you know, it was like being 18 again, you know, yeah, yeah. and enjoy it. Yeah. I oh, know that, that, that when the band came back in that first album was such a breath of fresh air at the time. And it's uh, the kind of, the, and the crazy vocals and the stage show and everything, it was a real big breath of fresh air. But was there a moment where you just thought, you just felt like most most engineers tell me that they reach in a in just a moment where they just sort of reach total burnout and just don't can't the ears just feel super tired and stuff you know yeah i mean i've been like that i've, I've been you know i've taken a couple of months off before where i was you know i was literally think mixing things back to back you know sort of 10 15 years ago i was doing so many sort of you know, bits on the side and, you know, I'll be doing a live thing here for someone and, and doing a quick mix for some, that's always a good one, isn't it? Oh, can you do a quick mix? Is that? Mm. <laughs> um, so there's so many bits like that and I was getting so fried with it. Um, but yeah, you know, you do sometimes have to just go, right, I'm going to take a month off here. I'm going to step back and, and you can guarantee that month will disappear before you know it. Yeah, um, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that we've been making a record and you've been there doing pulling 16, 18 or 20 hour days and the poor engineer has another band coming in at 10 a.m. and you're like finished at yeah. 10 past five or something. And you think yeah. it's a weird profession because it's a bit like tattooing or something like this because in the beginning you have to put in so many hours to prove yourself and put everything in and then people sort of get used to the fact that, oh, well, you know, you, you put a 16 hour in yesterday, but you've got to do it to kind of make the record sound better to then sell yourself the process of selling yourself you know you must have yeah. done some fucking mental back-to-back -back things then yeah i, I have and, and i'll tell you the, the other thing as well that you know when you've got um you know when i've got bands in here you'll be doing you know you'll be getting up at like nine o'clock nine ten o'clock into the studio 
you know, working, working on drums through till three in the afternoon, then going on to guitars and you know, working through until, I don't know, seven o'clock, going up something to eat, come back and doing sort of a late shift. But none of these guys who are in here are working all the time, but they think you, you should be working all the time. Do you know what I mean? Because if you're going, oh, I'm just going to take a couple of hours off now and go out, you know, this is our time, you know, it's, it's like they're watching the clock more than you are, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of why I, well, this situation now where I'm mixing, when I'm mixing on my own, I actually really like it because I can step away. I can have an afternoon off if I want to um, and come back to it. And I, I actually think it, it benefits more from that um, than, than trying to go at it constantly. So, yeah, I always feel like having two or three hours of concentrated effort as opposed to, days where you're kind of not you know you're half concentrating on things like even just doing singing i'd rather go in lash it out feels right go and select a few things but the sort of the laborious process i think sort of kills a bit of the energy and i don't think anybody's really can concentrate that long anymore you know oh no and you start zoning in on things that just aren't important as well you know yeah. you, you'll lose focus of the vibe if you're not careful yeah and so then we get to the, uh, I'm sort of kind of moving slowly to kind of chronologically or something like this. Then to sort of hell, uh, the second album, the second album of, of hell. Mm. Um, I suppose hell is it, is it kind of done now or what's happening? Yeah, it's done really. I mean, we, it, it, it got to a point where we, we couldn't really get it together to write a third album. Um, you know, certain people were more, you know, and I'm not putting anyone down here, but I had commitments with family and sure, yeah. It, yeah, just just couldn't get it focused really. And I I didn't feel the material we were coming up with felt hell, felt like hell. I mean, I, I think not having Dave Halliday there yeah. was it was a huge problem because we, we'd obviously used his material on the first two albums uh, mm. and sort of filled in the gaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kev, Kev had his way of writing, but it was, it was, it couldn't be all that way. It needed sort of Dave's influence in a way. It needed some of that simpler stuff, but more cleverer stuff in there. Um, and I just thought, you know, if it's not going to be right, what's the point in doing it? Um, I, the, the whole reason for doing hell for me was to get Dave's material out there. Mm. Um, and to actually make a bit of money for his family and, and, and just have a bit of fun with it really yeah. and get his name on, on, on the map, you know, and we did that. We did that with the two albums. Um, and it, it just wasn't really feeling right. So I, I said, you know, I'd rather it just, you know, I wouldn't say never, never again, but I, I just said, you know, let's just stop. Um, we're not doing anything that's of any value. We're, the, the gigs are getting, the gig offers are getting less. Um, yeah. We're not getting it off any chores. And it's like, what, what's the point? Let's not grind it into the ground. We've had a good laugh doing it. We're all still friends. Yeah. Let's just leave it, you know. And it was me having to do all the organizing. I was having to do all the all the recording. I was going to have to do most of the writing for the third record. Mm. Um, and I just wasn't prepared to do that. It, it was, it was, it's a big thing to do a whole record, especially when you're writing the whole thing and recording it and producing yeah. it and babysitting the whole thing. Yeah. And financing it, so I was, I just I was like, guys, I haven't got time, you know. <laughs> just not not when it there's not you know when I've got band members saying, oh, I can't really go on tour because I've just had a kid, and 
you know, yeah, you can't get, I'm like, well, what's the point in doing a record then? You know, this, you know, I, I didn't see see a reason. You know? Yeah. So it was kind of like a sort of um, a very cool summer holiday. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was a lad's jolly, basically. Yeah. Every, every time we went away, it, it was like we were on a stag do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's good. And we had, we had some really good times, actually. And it was, it was nice because we've all known each other for 20 odd years, longer than that, 30 years. Um, so it was nice just for everyone to reconnect and have a laugh. And for those guys, because they'd never been on big stages or done festivals or anything like that, to let them go out and do some festivals and see, it, see a bit of, you know, what the metal scene's really about. It, it was great. You know, we had such a good time doing it. So, and, you know, we, they wouldn't have got a chance to do it otherwise. So it was great just to be able to put those songs out and do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like I, I'm looking at the thing now and it's we're about three, three quarters way through and I haven't mentioned uh, Judas Priest, I suppose. It's about time to mention that. If you could tell your year old self who I watched today playing in Braunschweig that you would be playing in Judas Priest, what would he have thought of that? I, don't, I mean, I'm still, you know, still, you know, what the hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it, how things work out? I mean, I just, uh, I, you know, I even when I was doing the album, I, you know, I knew we'd got, you know, obviously Glenn had got health problems and I, I, I kept saying to the guys, what do you think you're going to do? Um, you know, it, it was suggested, oh, you know, we're going to have to get, a, you know, someone in it, whether it's not behind the scenes, but get a, a, someone in as backup type thing. Mm. Uh, and I, I didn't really think anything of it. And I don't know whether they were thinking of me at the time. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, Glenn asked me, it was second to last day of rehearsal in the UK before the American tour. And he, I was down there and he just turned around to me and said, you know, do you think you can do it? And I was like, well, yeah, I'll give it a go, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, talk about thrown to the lions, you know, I mean, it really was you yeah. know, three weeks, <laughs> three weeks before the tour started. And I had three afternoons rehearsal with them um, before the first show with wow. six thousand in the US. Just three uh, rehearsals. Yeah. yeah. And it was just three run throughs, you know, um, three afternoons. Uh, we, we were meant to have 10 days, but I couldn't get out there because of my visa. And because well, yeah. it was bad weather on the East Coast as well. They had snow all down the East Coast at the time. Um, so flights get getting cancelled. And yeah, so it was, it was really up to the wire on it. Um, so it was a bit shaky to start off with. I mean, I think we did all right. Um, but it got way more confident as we, we went on with it and just, yeah. you know, you know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I know Rich has not been there for 40 odd years, but he's been with the band 10 years. So he, he knows, he's, he's, you can see how he's developed his place in the band. But, yeah. You know, stepping on, stepping on stage, on that size, size of stage with different monitors, different gear, different crew. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. Everyone thinks, you know, you know Judas Priest, you know, you jam breaking the law in the pub it's easy but to step into that those shoes in that situation with that pressure yeah, yeah. Um, was huge at the time you know yeah when um, we were, you're stepping into an in, into just like a, also a musical legacy i suppose is quite uh um, you must i've had some trepidation about uh how well not how you would be perceived 
but that well, you were... received, really. I mean, the yeah. um, because it's sort well, of it's sort of thing. I think a lot of fans were actually quite confused with the whole situation. It was a bit of a weird reaction. Um, and I think you know, a lot of people even now don't quite understand the situation the way it is with Glenn because he's still there. He's still part of the band. He's mm. just not physically able to get up there and do a full set, you know, yeah. and it, they needed helping out. So yeah. it really right. was it's sort of a gentleman's agreement. It was like, Andy, can, can you help us? You know, yeah. can, can you? And that's all it is, really. Um, well, I saw so, it at Sweden Rock. I saw Sweden Rock, and I thought it—I I thought it was a great show, actually. I thought it worked. Right. It was very reverential. And then Glenn came out at the end, and uh, I, I remember coming away from that. And I was talking with the with the lads, and uh, you know, Johan from Ronald Mark was there, and I said, "So, what do you think of this?" And he's just like, "Oh, this was really strong." You know, kind of respectful the way it was done, and then all this footage in the background and everything was it was cool, you know. But it was yeah, very. I mean, it... Sorry. Go on. No, no, no. It, 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 I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. We, I mean, we've we've sort of had to adapt the thing. You know, we, I, I can't remember if we did victim of changes um, at Sweden Rock. Well, we've got you know Glenn. Uh, there's the little solo bit at the end, and, and Glenn's there. And we, you know, in Painkiller. Mm. You know, when the Painkiller solo is happening, we, we've got Glenn up there as well. Um, and I, I've always. You know, he's a good friend, so I, I don't, I, I don't want to be up there and tread on his toes. But when, when I, when they asked me to do it, I was like, well, I can't go up there and jump about like a lunatic because that's like, who's this guy up there like that? And so yeah. it, it took a while to realise where I needed to be on stage. I was trying to watch Richie out of one eye to see when he was moving forward to try and keep the stage symmetrical and when Rob, where Rob was and where I needed to be. <clears throat> so it, it really, you know, it took, like I say, it took ten, fifteen shows to sort of get comfortable um really and feel like it, it was beginning to click a little bit um by the time we went out to america the second time and we did the deep purple run uh when i watched the footage from that it looks a lot more natural and a lot more comfortable but i think you know it's going to be like that with anyone i mean even you know more seasoned guitar player than me um mm. i think falling into that position there would have been some nerves there from, from anyone really yeah, yeah. so I, I just you know it, it, it was tough it, it, it was it was definitely tough but we you know we got through it so yeah it's it's a lot of fun the great guys you know rob's rob's brilliant actually he's mm. there's a lot of little comical bits on stage that the crowd don't get but we, we do have a good time up there yeah yeah and it, i i was kind of like really pleasantly surprised also with some of the set list choices are you allowed to have a hand in pick some of these songs that haven't been played in ages well, we, um, we do have a little bit of a, a, a discussion sometimes you know, in the jam room. Um, there's, there's usually me, Richie and Scott and Ian will pop in occasionally. Um, and it'll be like, oh, you know, do you know this one? Blah, blah, blah. And I figured out if I, if I learned a certain song, um, Richie knows everything. Yeah. He, he does. He, I don't know how he does it, but he knows everything. Scott knows most of it. Um, so if I, if I learn it, it means we can do it. Um, so if there's something that I'm kind of like, oh, maybe we should try and get Starbreaker in the set. You know, yeah, yeah. Time, you know. That's what I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm like, oh, I've, I've learned this, you know, and we'll have a jam through and it'll be sounding good. And then Rob will hear it through the wall. And, oh, should maybe do that tonight. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My evil plot, yeah. But no, it's, it's good because we, we can, you know, because we've got, it, you know, three fans within the band with me, Scott and Richie. Yeah. Uh, 
we can sort of dig a bit deeper on some of this stuff and, and pull the odd, you know, one one out of sort of left field and throw it in there, like you know, delivering the goods or um, you know, killing machines, some of that stuff. It's great, you know. It's, yeah. and it's, fans love it. I mean, obviously, you can't do a full set of that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I throw. Uh, to swap the set around a little bit keeps it interesting for us and, and, and for the fans as well. So Yeah, well, yeah. certainly some surprises when I saw it and it was just like that kind of look when you look at some music and go, holy fuck, they're playing this, you know, was, uh, was songs I hadn't seen Priest play in years and years, you know. Yeah, yeah it's good, isn't it? And it's, uh, I mean, I think the, um, the, when we get round to it, this 50th anniversary tour, whenever it happens, there'll be some good stuff in, in that set. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I figured out the other day. I think I've learned fifty-two songs now. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few riffs. And I tell you, the weird thing. Well, the hard thing is that um, a lot of the shapes, um, sort of the little melody licks, are quite similar. You know, Glenn. Glenn's got his style of writing. So when I was having to learn a lot of that in one, you know, in three weeks, trying to remember there's a bit of light in that was the same as a bit in ripper and it was oh yeah <laughs> your fingers you know you go into the wrong song after time so yeah it's tricky but so, so when you found out that you were going to do it like who was the first person that you told and i'm just going to imagine their face when you were just kind of went uh yeah i'm gonna play the guitar and judas priest or were, um, you, sworn, or were you sworn to secrecy for a few days and you had to bite your lip or what uh, no no i told a couple of friends but the um I mean, I, I, I said, yes, I'll do it straight away. And then I told my girlfriend, um, I might be away for a little bit now. And that was like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I got it in the neck there. Um, but yeah, it, it was, I told a few of my friends who were, you know, big priest fans, you know, Barker, for instance. Yeah. 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 I told yeah. Nick, I'm close with Nick. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was like fucking hell. This is this is a bit bizarre, uh, but it didn't really it didn't sink in with me to start off with, and it's still now. Um, it's it's a bit of a, it's just a bit of a strange situation because I'm not actually in the band. Sure, I'm, I'm just I'm there to help them out, and I've said I'll help them out. Um, so it it is what it is, really. It's just you know I, I'm just. You know, I'm going to be work, working on the new record with them as well. Um, not not playing, you know, producing. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's actually, it's, it actually suits me the way it is really. Because I can, you know, I've got this side of things. Um, if they need me to do that, I'll, I'll hop on board and, and do that for them. You know, so it's, it's you know, it's fine. It's, it's fun. Yeah. And, you, and you're, uh, can you imagine your teenage self, like I said, just no, <laughs> no I, I, I mean, you know, even my uh, you know, 50 year old self was going, holy shit, you know, never mind teenage self. Yeah. 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 I remember um, uh, up on stage, Dr. Kidjo uh, at Rock City and playing Grinder with him in the uh, would have been early 90s or late 80s, early 90s. And I actually got on stage, got older Glenn. I was like, Glenn Tipton, it's Glenn Tipton. <laughs> Total fanboy. Dived off stage and nearly killed myself. Yeah. Um, I was a, such a huge pre-stun. You know, they, they were the band for me. Um, yeah. yeah, Maiden as well. But Priest were, were sort of that, how can I say, not, not more rigid. Yeah, more rigid in a way. It's more metal in a way. Maiden yeah. were a bit more... Yeah. 
you know, because of Bruce, it was more sort of a thinking man's sort of, it had a bit more of a progressive side to it, where Priest was straight ahead metal, no messing, weren't they? You know, yeah. and you can hear where the, you can hear where, you know, Slayer took it from. And a lot of the thrash bands took that, that, you know, sort of free will burning and all those kind of things and took it a step further, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so Priest were like a, a forerunner to thrash for me. I always thought Maiden, so, slightly more, Maiden was maybe the slightly more cerebral, fantastical, and Priest was the more like the sort of gut-grinding rock and roll. Me, kind of me, me, potatoes metal, wasn't it, Priest? Yeah. yeah. Especially by the time they got to, you know, British Steel, it was like, you know, oh, I think Dave Holland had a lot to do with that. You know, I mean, people don't really rate Dave that highly, but I think he had a, he had a very solid... Um, just the way he played. I mean, it looked awkward the way he played, but when you listen yeah. to how solid he was on the records, it was, it was it was actually shaped the sound quite a lot, I think. Mm. Uh, I always think about British Steel like as almost like the first ever modern heavy metal record. It, kind of the, the, the way the chords are and the, you know, the gong, 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 that kind of thing. It's not really in 70s rock. A lot of some more 70s metal is the twin harmony and a slightly thinner guitar sound and stuff. It always strikes me as like, grinder as you say is like oh that's metal gods is kind of this is the first modern sort of heavy metal record. It, it, it was almost pop the way it was written wasn't it it was very um very arranged and very sort of simple songs in a way but heavy and it, yeah. and it, it was a space within the riffs that made it heavy um and, and it really was i mean you can hear them venturing into that territory on on um killing machine a little bit but by the time they got to you know, British Steel, they'd really hone that in. Actually, point of entry um, after that went a little bit off course, didn't it? It's got some good moments. Yeah. But it really, it, you know, it's got some moments that are like, hmm. Yeah, this is it Don't Go, the one with the reggae intro or something is a bit like... Yeah, yeah. Is, is, is it Turning Circles as well? Is that on there as well? Yeah, I think it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah so it was a bit, yeah, didn't, didn't quite hit the mark. But yeah, we've got Solar Angels on there, so that's all right. Desert um, Plains, yeah. Desert Plains, yeah. It's heading out on the highway on, on that album as well. It is, yeah. Isn't it? it is, yeah. Yeah, so there's some good stuff on there. But obviously, you know, by the time Screaming came along, they really they nailed it on that album, didn't they? And they actually did that album in two stints. I didn't realize Tom Allen was telling me they had a six-month break in the middle of that. Um, so, yeah, there's two halves to the recording. Wow. So You wouldn't know, would you? No, doesn't sound like it at all. No. No. Well, sir, mm. it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's see how, how long of, is it been going? This isn't going to look good on my, on my YouTube edit. But, um, <laughs> yeah. But so, do you think, what, how are we all going to go around back, try and get back around to the beginning of all of this when talking about the music industry and that kind of thing? Um, I have a feeling like probably next year is going to go and it's going to be strange to see what's left standing maybe in 2022. But do you think we can all, uh, I don't know, not, could you think we can all adapt to the new norms? I hate this phrase, but how is rock and metal going to sort of come out of this? Because it strikes me that it's just kind of an, uh, an anachronism in a way for this technical modern new world that might be coming in or am I just being melodramatic by thinking that? I think you're being melodramatic a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think um, it'll survive. It, it'll adapt a little bit, but it'll survive. Uh, you know, no, no one's going anywhere. 
Um, well, that's I, think, uh, I think, you know, I, I think a year will go by quicker than we realize and, and, and things will work out. You know, the, it, this, this whole situation will peter out eventually. Um, but it's just, it's going to take time. And I think, I think it will come back, but it's going to be, I think it's going to be a little bit longer than people participating. I don't think, um, I'm hoping the gigs are going to happen next year, all this stuff that's being rearranged. I mean, it's, you know, everyone's sort of rescheduling all the festivals have, have sort of moved everything a year back, haven't they? Yeah. Um, fingers crossed it'll happen, but uh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, we're in September already and America's not getting much better at the minute. So um, you can see the second wave beginning to come a little bit here. Mm. So I don't know. It's, we don't know till we get there. Yeah, I um, think it's there's probably a certain amount of, I suppose that we, I was thinking about this, that we've almost sort of had it too good for such a long time. I'm not going to say in the West or something like this, but that a, six months or a year seems like, somehow sort of a long time when you're living through it but in the grand breath of history or something having 18 months off isn't really that big a deal i'm just wondering what is left standing after it you know yeah i don't i, th I think uh, yeah it'll pop back to normal in, in, in its own roundabout way i mean it's you know we talk about um you know the way that uh, you know the internet's affected the music business but everyone's adapted you know everyone's still here Mm. Um, and, and this will be another way that, you know, people adapt, you know, there'll be a way of, of, of doing shows when it starts coming back and it, it will find a way of making it work. So it'll just be, it will be a, you know, a, a change, but a new normal, as you keep saying. But, uh, <laughs> maybe, I should, maybe I should turn, I'm, I'm, maybe I should just become a politician, actually, you know, that would, I could use my energies into, into that, you know. Yeah. Anyway, sir, it's been a pleasure. Um, we're doing about an hour here, and that's usually what I do about with this stuff. But um, thanks for taking the time to have a chat and all that kind of stuff. It's all right. It's good. And this, yeah. is, this is the new normal that I'm a content creator now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, mate. All right, Chief. Good stuff. Thanks a lot, right. man. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.